morning. Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to Revelation uh, chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16 is where we are. Last week, we looked at a text that was really quite transitional, served as a bookend for what began in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, and it also introduced the next major section of the book of Revelation, namely the seven bowls of God's wrath. We saw that this wrath is coming upon those who are aligned with the beast. And in light of this coming judgment, what we saw in the text is that the people of God sing God's praises. And in their song, we saw the relationship between who God is and what God does. He does what he does because of who he is, and we should praise him for all of this. Our response to everything that he is and everything that he does is to praise him. So for application, I invited you to worship God. We talked about how his mercy is real how his mercy is great and marvelous. And we don't have any problem acknowledging that when it comes to mercy. But in the text last week, we saw that his wrath is also real. And his wrath is also great and marvelous. What we need is a well-rounded, biblically informed worship. That is our aim. To have a right view of God as he has revealed himself to be and not commit some kind of idolatry where we pick and choose which attributes of God we will praise him for and which we will simply reject. We don't get to do that. The God of the Bible is full of mercy and he is full of wrath. He is holy and we should praise him for all of this. Secondly, I invited you to preach the gospel. I invited you to tell the world that judgment is coming, but salvation is available. One of the purposes of texts like this is to call people to faith and repentance. And one of the purposes of a text like this is to inspire us to call people to faith and repentance. So we want to be about evangelism. And then finally, last week, I asked you, where do you stand? In light of the text last week, where do you stand? Do you stand with him on the sea uh, in a position of safety because of God's grace through faith in Jesus that you've experienced? Or do you stand under the bowls of God's wrath along with his enemies? There's not a middle road. You are either with him in his grace or you are against him and will experience his wrath. Uh, and and that's, a, that's an important question for us to consider all the time is where do we stand when it comes to these things? Well, this week we're going to begin to see some of the particulars about these seven bowls of God's wrath. Once again, let me remind you that this is apocalyptic literature. The images that we will see today described should stir us up. They should move us. They should startle us. They should frighten us. They should wake us up. When we get into this today, we need to try to avoid the pressure of either understanding these things very concretely or literalistically, and we also need to avoid the mistake of trying to explain what phenomenon that we are familiar with that would look like these things. In other words, I agree with Grant Osborne when he says, these are highly symbolic. These are highly symbolic, but at the same time, the pictured events are intended to get us, like the readers in the first century, to imagine what such terrible judgments would look like. It's almost as if we would say, what's the worst thing you could imagine? What's the worst thing you could imagine? And then ratchet that up a few notches, and that's what it will be like for those who go on in their unbelief. That's what it will be like to experience the wrath of God for those who go on in their unrepentance. And so right off the bat today, I want to invite you to not not live in unbelief, not live in unrepentance. I want to invite you right off the bat today to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. There is only one escape from the wrath of God. There's only one escape from the wrath of God, and that is to trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a way of deliverance. There is a way of rescue. And that way is open 
for all who will repent of their sins and believe. And so I invite you to do that today if you haven't. Let's read together in the text. Chapter 16, we're going to get uh, verses 1 through 11 today. We'll pick up with verse 12 next week and see the last two bowls next week. This is God's word. Revelation chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood, like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to scorched men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, King of the nations, Lord God Almighty, we thank you for making a way of salvation for us. We thank you for saving us through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for raising up someone to preach this good news to us. We thank you for giving us faith to trust in Jesus and repentance to turn away from our sins. We thank you for the confident hope that we have of eternal life with you in glory and the coming day of vindication for us and judgment upon your enemies. We pray today that you would bring salvation to others like you brought it to us. That you would use even us in this process as faithful and bold witnesses to the person and work of Jesus among our neighbors and the nations. Oh Lord, open our eyes and our ears to see and hear all that you would have for us in your word today. And we pray that you would help us respond properly to all of it by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today I want us to work through the text like we usually do, taking basically one bowl at a time. Uh, We will look today at the first five of the seven bowls. We'll leave the next two for next weekend. I think one of the things that will be helpful for us as we move along today is to pay careful attention to the interruptions in the action and the commentary in the text as these things unfold. There are several times, especially as we move on in the text today, where the, the action of the pouring out of these bowls is interrupted by some kind of comment. And we want to pay close attention to those things. They are there uh, to get our attention and to inform us of what's going on here. So let's look at verse 1 first. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now there's a certain amount of repetition here of something that we saw last week. Namely, that this is coming out of the temple. That is, it is coming from the very presence of God. And this is reinforced by this voice that commands the angels to pour the seven bowls of wrath out. Many scholars argue that this voice is the voice of the Lord God himself who is giving direction to these angels. 
The point here is summarized well in the last phrase. This is the wrath of God. What we are going to see is not the wrath of the dragon. It's not the wrath of the beast. It's not the wrath of Babylon. It's not the wrath of man. This is the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is terrifying. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, talks about the wrath of God like this. We need a proper definition of the wrath of God. He says, if God loves all that is right and good and all that conforms to his moral character, then it should not be surprising that he would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. God's wrath directed against sin is therefore closely related to God's holiness and justice. God's wrath may be defined as follows. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. Joe prayed along these lines a while ago. God intensely hates all sin and therefore pours out his wrath. Let me also remind you of what I shared last week from Leon Morris, the guy from Australia. You might remember that part. He says, God's wrath is a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil, arising out of God's very nature. God's wrath is a burning zeal for the right, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. A perfect zeal for that which is right, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. And Daryl Johnson ties all of this together when he says, the bowls are, therefore, the natural, automatic reflex of holiness. The bulls are the logical response, the awful logical response of holiness to evil and impurity. In other words, this is not some foreign thing that God is about to do. This is part of his very character that is going to be on display. And when we talk about the wrath of God, we need to see it closely linked to the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the justice of God. This is not God acting outside of his character. This is part of who he is, and we need to see that. And we need to praise him for it like what we saw last week. So what we're about to read about is this vision that John has concerning the wrath of God. What does it look like? Look at verse 2. It says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So the first thing to observe here is that there is obvious Old Testament paint going on here. This, this is Old Testament imagery that is being used here, as has been being used throughout the book, especially when we talked about the seals and then the trumpets, and now as we talk about the bowls of God's wrath. Specifically, in the bowls and the trumpets, there's a bunch of paint from the book of Exodus, from the stories and the plagues of Exodus. And as there, we saw the wrath of God against his enemies, and we saw the deliverance of God for his people. It's much the same here. What we are seeing is not just the wrath of God against his enemies, but we are also seeing the deliverance of God for his people. Now, medically speaking, I don't know what this is. What disease causes loathsome and malignant sores on people? I don't know. And I think it's perfectly okay that I don't know. I think it's perfectly okay if you don't know. This is probably figurative and symbolic language here. But we need to understand that calling it symbolic and figurative language doesn't make it any better. In fact, arguably, it makes it even worse. If you think these sores are bad, in fact, if you've ever had a boil or a sore that just festered and wouldn't heal, you know how bad that could be. Imagine having one of those things in the first century when there's no access to antibiotics and modern medicine and things like that. That would make you absolutely miserable. It sounds awful, right? And if I come along and say, oh, that's, that's just symbolic... You may say, oh, no big deal. But you should say, that's just symbolic. Symbolic of what? 
What could that point us to that is somehow better? It sounds awful and it is intended to sound awful. If there is something so bad that is coming that the best way we can describe it is malignant and awful sores all all over everybody, I can tell you this, I want no part of that. And you should want no part of it either. Notice the adjectives that are used to describe these sores. New American Standard calls them loathsome and malignant. ESV calls them harmful and painful. NIV calls them ugly and festering. One translation, I can't remember which one it was, called them stinking sores. This is nasty, right? It's gross. kind of makes you sick at your stomach, right? In fact, maybe it reminds you of certain, certain sections of God's word in the Old Testament and in Leviticus and, and uh, in, in Deuteronomy maybe even where, where we see the, the priest constantly examining people's sores. And like if it's got a white hair in it and it's festering, then, you, then it's unclean and it's just nasty and disgusting, right? I don't want to do that. And this is the picture that is painted, those kind of sores all over all kinds of people. The word, I did some research about the Greek words that are used there, and interestingly, both of those words have an evil connotation. In fact, one of the words, the second word that John uses here, is the same word that he uses throughout 1 John in his, in his letter to the churches that he pastors, same word that he used to describe the evil one, that is Satan himself. So so the word that is used here to describe these sores, the adjective that is used is the same word that is used to identify Satan himself. So there is an evil nature. These are evil sores that are breaking out on people. The final thing I want you to notice when we talk about this first bowl is that it is directed, like the others, specifically at those who had the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. So we saw earlier when we talked about the mark of the beast that if you take that mark, you'll be able to buy and sell. But if you take that mark, you will also find yourself covered with these sores as an outpouring of the wrath of God. But as terrible as this sounds, I want you to see that this is not the fullness of the wrath of God just yet. In fact, there's mercy here. There's mercy here as those sores break out on people. They're still alive, and there's still an opportunity to repent. The question is, will they? It's a question we've asked multiple times. Read on about the second bowl, verse 3. It says, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. This is nasty too, right? All of this imagery is gross and disgusting, and this would have been particularly disrupting to life. Notice that it's described as the blood of a dead man. I mean, the blood of a living man is nasty enough, right? I have it on good authority that the blood of a dead man is even nastier than the blood of a living man. Don't think here uh, that this is somehow bright red and liquidy kind of blood. The image that is described here is black and oozy blood, the blood of a dead man. And not only think about how nasty this scene is, that this sea would be turned to blood, but notice he also says everything in the sea suddenly died. I was talking with Doug in the back about his plans for Memorial Day weekend and a shrimp boil, and I'm not interested in shrimp boil not interested in seafood at all and part of the reason why I'm not interested in seafood is the smell in fact I think that fresh seafood smells about five percent better than rotten seafood and so I want to vomit just thinking about this 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 imagery of every fish in the sea dead in this pool of black oozy blood floating around this will turn your stomach this is disgusting and not only is it disgusting let's acknowledge that in the first century this would have shut down the world 
It would have shut down the economy. It would have shut down trade. It would have shut down travel. Again, we can't think of anything much worse than this, especially in a first century context. All the fish are dead. The sea is oozy blood. Everything is shut down. We can't think of much worse than this. Could it get much worse than this? This is the wrath of God. Could it get much worse than this? Evidently it can. Read on in verse 4. It says, Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So you see, it can get worse. It's not only the sea that is blood and death, now it's the fresh water too. Again, imagine turning on the faucet and blood coming out. Once again, a concrete, literalistic picture of this is really bad. How much worse is that for which it stands? If this is a symbol, how much worse is the reality of God's wrath and his judgment against sinners? And notice here, we get our first interruption. We get our first interruption in the action and our first comment, and we want to pay close attention to this. The angel speaks about this, and notice what he says. First thing you'll notice is that he highlights the righteousness of God. He highlights the righteousness of God in this wrath. He calls him the Holy One. He says, this is your doing. You are judging these things rightly. Grant Osborne says, the central theme is the righteousness of God. But this Greek word also means justice. So this is affirming that the righteousness of God mandates the justice of divine punishment. The righteousness of God mandates the justice of divine punishment. Speaking of God, notice that he's no longer referred to as the one who was, who is, and who is to come. That's the form that we've seen throughout Revelation, right? Who was, who is, and who is to come. And here he's just referred to as the one who was and who is, because the is to come has come. We are here. We are near the end when we talk about these things. Notice that the angel also highlights the fittingness of this judgment. He says, they, that is the enemies of God, poured out the blood of the prophets, and God has given them blood to drink. We would say the punishment fits the crime. The angel says, quote, they deserve it. Literally, that phrase is, they are worthy. I don't know why any uh, English translation doesn't translate it that way. I don't know why they seek to avoid the sense of sarcasm and parallelism that's intended here. Early in the book, we saw there's no one worthy to open the book and break its seals, right? But then Jesus was found, and he is worthy. And they scream about how he is worthy. All the angelic creatures, all the heavenly beings, they scream about the worthiness of Jesus. And here, it says they are worthy. They are worthy not of glory, not of worship. They are worthy of punishment like this. The angel declares that God is just. Now, before you get too puffed up over this as Christians... We want to remember that we are deserving of the wrath of God too. That we are worthy of the wrath of God. And Jesus stepped in and took it for us. We sang about that a couple of times today. That's a big, important truth. That Jesus took the wrath of God in our place. 
what should shock us is not that God would pour out his wrath upon sinners. What should shock us is that God would show mercy to any sinners. Not that he would judge and condemn, but that he would save. That's the surprising truth of the Bible. Don't be shocked when we read about his wrath being poured out. We understand that we all deserve his wrath. Be shocked that he would reach down and rescue any of us. And he does. He has. He will rescue sinners by his grace. And we are so thankful for that. Notice also at the end of this section, the altar speaks. Is that weird? Not at this point in Revelation, right? At this point in Revelation, a piece of furniture starts talking and we're not creeped out about it, right? It's just the way apocalyptic literature goes. And the altar worships the Lord. He says, yes, he agrees with the angel. The altar agrees with the angel. He says, yes, you are righteous and you are just and you are true in all of your judgments. George Eldon Ladd says, the altar affirms that God's judgments are not arbitrary and capricious, but they are true and just. In the end, God's acts of judgment will be completely vindicated. God is just as he pours out his wrath on sinners. Genesis 18, in this story uh, where, where Abraham is, is uh, negotiating with God for the salvation of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family and all that, there's a statement that he makes in the middle of it when he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. And then he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Abraham is recognizing that God is just in his punishment. He is. The altar agrees. The angel of the waters agrees. Psalm 19 verse 9 says it like this. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. We, we need to affirm that along with the altar, along with the angel of the waters, that God's judgments are true. They are righteous altogether. Look at verse 8. It says, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. We've seen this kind of cosmic imagery before about the sun and the moon, but only then the sun was darkened. Here, the sun is intensified. And what I want us to see is it's bad news either way. Either way, for those who dwell on the earth, if the sun is ratcheted up, dialed up a bit, we're in big trouble. And if the sun is turned down a bit, we're in big trouble. Maybe you've read uh, scientific studies about how if the earth were just a little bit further from the sun, we would all freeze. And if it was a little bit closer, we would all burn up. Yeah, if you turn up the sun, we're in trouble. Or if you turn it down, and here it seems to be turned up. It's bad news. Have you ever had a really terrible sunburn? And, and, and just known how miserable that is, I, I, I think this happens every time we take the youth uh, to the beach. Occasionally we do that, and, and uh, kids who live around here almost always have their shirts on and, and uh, are covered up, and, and all of a sudden they spend a couple hours on the beach and they get fried. And then they're miserable for the rest of the week when we're there, and some of, sometimes they have blisters. We had one guy who like, had these terrible blisters because of a sunburn. Misery comes with sunburn, right? And that's the picture that's going on here, and it's even worse the wrath of God is even worse than that. The imagery is provocative here. But once again, let's not just look at the imagery of God's wrath. Let's look at the commentary about it. Look at the commentary about this. It's truly heartbreaking. 
this text teaches us that these people who are suffering recognize that God is the one who's in control of all this. They recognize that. In their heads, they know that he's the one who has the power over these plagues. It's his power that is on display. And yet, despite what they know, they did not repent. They did not repent and give him glory. Rather, they blasphemed. They shook their fist at him and cursed at him. One of the things that we've been pointing out in these judgments is the mercy of God. The mercy of God in these judgments that he is giving people time to repent. He is giving people reason to repent. He's giving people motivation to repent while there is still time. It's one of the things we see in these cycles of judgment. The question we've asked over and over again in these texts is, will they? Will they repent? And here we learn the answer. No, they won't. But every time we've talked about this, I've said the bigger question we have to ask every time is not will they repent. The bigger question is will you repent? I hope so. I hope so. Today is the day. Maybe God is using this text today, all of this nasty picture of the wrath of God. Maybe he's using all of that to bring you to repentance and faith today. If so, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he would use these terrifying images to bring you to repentance. Repentance that these people will not participate in. Look at verse 10. It says, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. There's more cosmic imagery here, right? Now, the lights go out. Earlier, the lights got turned up. Now, the lights go out. And that's terrible, too. Especially after the lights have just been turned up for there to be darkness is even worse. And then it says this strange imagery about they were gnawing at their tongues because of their pain. One of the guys that I talked with this week about this text uh, brought up how painful it is to accidentally bite your tongue. You, you've done that, right? You're, you're eating dinner and you accidentally bite your tongue and it's just this unexpected, inescapable pain that, that you just you can't get away from. And it ruins your day, right? It definitely ruins the meal. Imagine experiencing something so bad, so bad going on around you that to find comfort, you start chewing on your own tongue. This is the kind of imagery that he's describing here, that it is, it is dark and it is so terrible and there's sores and there's pain and there's all of this stuff going on so bad that they gnaw on their tongues to try to find some comfort because of their pain. The wrath of God is no joke. It is not a game. It is worse than the worst thing we can imagine. It's what we're learning from this text. But the worst part of this text is that these unbelievers in light of all of this, double down, shaking their fist at God. They continue in their blasphemies, and they do not repent. And that's terrible. But when we zoom out from this text, we zoom out, in fact, not just from these verses, but from all of what we've been seeing in Revelation, over and over and over, we see some things really clearly. One thing we see is the patience and the long-suffering of God. It seem like a strange thing to mention when we're talking about the wrath of God, but I'm talking about zooming out from this particular scene. Let's zoom out and think of the things we've seen over and over and over again and tell me we don't see the patience and long-suffering of God. Over and over and over, he gives chance after chance to repent and be saved. He didn't have to do that, right? He doesn't have to deliver these warnings. 
He doesn't have to bring these escalating judgments so that people will repent. He could just bring the full measure of his wrath in an instant. In fact, he could have done it in Genesis chapter 3. As soon as Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, he could have destroyed them then. But he's merciful, and he's patient, and he's long-suffering. And so he comes to them in the garden, and he says, what have you done? And from then forward, we've seen the patience and mercy of God in giving people every opportunity to repent. And he's still doing that. There is time to repent and believe today. If you're alive and breathing, repent. Trust in Christ today. So when we zoom out, we see the patience and long-suffering of God. When we zoom out, we also see the total depravity of man. We see the total depravity of man. They understand who is doing this. They understand in this text today, they understand that this is the power of God that is on display. They understand this is the wrath of God. And they know why. It is because of their sins. And yet they double down and they resist. They double down and they blaspheme. They double down and they curse God rather than repent. We see the total depravity of man. In light of his great mercy, in light of these opportunities to repent, they say, we don't want anything to do with that. We see the total depravity of man. Look at Proverbs 19, verse 3. It says, The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. It is foolishness to rage against the Lord like this, and yet it's so common. It's so common. People's hearts get harder and harder and harder, and it comes out in these blasphemies against God. We see the total depravity of man. Jesus speaks about this in John chapter 3, one of the most familiar texts in all of the Bible. That is one of the least familiar texts in all of the Bible. But we know John 3.16 really well. We don't know what he says right after that. Look at it. In in chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right on. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds would be exposed. This is what we're seeing played out here in Revelation. That God has has given opportunity. He's made a way of salvation. He's been long-suffering and patient and merciful with people. But they don't embrace it. They reject it, in fact. They love the darkness. They hate the light. And so, therefore, the third thing we see when we zoom out is the justice of God in the judgment of sinners. We've seen his patience. We've seen the depravity of man. And so when we see his wrath poured out in its full, it makes sense. It makes sense. It fits. They deserve it. They are worthy As the angel says, we see the justice of God in his judgment. The talking altar is right. Daryl Johnson says this, God's wrath is not capricious, not arbitrary. It is earned. It is chosen. Oh, that's a scary thing. it's It's not ignorance. It's willful rebellion. And we're seeing that definitely here in Revelation. They understand this is coming from God, and they blaspheme him because of it. 
They understand this is the power of God on display, and they shake their fist in rebellion against him. They are choosing judgment. J.I. Packer says it like this in, a, in a, man, an epic talk about the wrath of God in a book called Knowing God. He says, nobody stands under the wrath of God save those who have chosen to do so. Eyes wide open. Rejection of God. This is, this is flowing really out of Romans chapter 1. That nobody has an excuse. Because God has revealed himself to all people. Tim Challey says, God is not cruel in his wrath. He's not arbitrary. His wrath will never extend to the ignorant or innocent. I'll stop there and explain what he means by that. Because there's no such thing as ignorance or innocence. You know, I heard, I heard uh, David Platt one time uh, field a question of, well, what about the innocent man in Africa who's never heard anything about any of this? He said, oh, the innocent man in Africa would ter- totally go to heaven. Problem is, there's no innocent man anywhere. In Africa, in Peru, in America, in Harrisburg, there's no innocent man anywhere. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us deserve nothing but his wrath. Charlie says, his wrath will never extend to the ignorant or innocent. He will apportion his wrath with perfect fairness upon those who have chosen to face it. Men and women and boys and girls choose to face it every day. In fact, there are many, maybe even among us, who choose to face it. They're not ignorant, they're not innocent, and yet they hate God. And friends, we were once there. We were all once there. We hated him. We got shaking our fist at him. Some of, some of you did this as adults. Some of you did it as little children. Some of you did it as adults. And God rescued you. He changed you. He saved you. He gave you a new heart, a new life, a new mind. He can do that with anybody. Here's the application today. Number one, this is terrifying. This is what we're reading about is terrifying stuff. All the imagery is disgusting and gross and absolutely terrifying. And so application number one is be afraid of this. When you consider the wrath of God, the just, righteous wrath of God, you should be terrified of it. It's not a game. It's not a joke. Number two, this wrath is coming. This is really coming. And so therefore, repent. There's only one escape from the coming wrath, and it is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So repent and believe today. There's hope for deliverance. There's hope for rescue. There's hope for salvation in Christ alone. So repent and believe in light of the coming judgment. Number three, this is coming. So let's preach. Let's preach. Do you know about the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Because somebody told you. Somebody came to you and loved you and told you about salvation in Christ alone. Do that for other people. Be about sharing that good good news with other people so that they might be saved. So that they could have hope of deliverance and life eternal with the Lord. This wrath is coming, so we must preach the hope of the gospel to the nations and to our neighbors. Number four, this wrath is coming, so we will trust the Lord. I think even though this text is teaching us that these things are poured out directly upon those who have the mark of the beast, those who are the enemies of God, I think those of us who are friends of God will feel some of that as well. 
like indirect effect of that wrath that's being poured out. It will not be easy to live in a world where the, where the water is blood. It will not be easy to live in a world where these kind of things are happening, even if they're not happening directly to us. Does that make sense? So as the wrath of God is poured out, as the world falls apart, we trust the Lord for the world to come, for life that is eternal. We can trust him in the midst of it. We can stand with him on the sea of glass like we saw last week. Even though it's mixed with fire, we'll stand with him on the sea of glass. We can trust him. Maybe if we were going to boil all, down, all of this down today, we would say, don't be them. Don't be these people who are experiencing such trauma and do not repent. And don't wait. Don't wait till it gets really bad. Pastor Dylan was talking about this earlier in the week. He was like, it just breaks my heart when I hear people articulate in some subtle form, I'm just not ready for that yet. Oh, just, just give me some time and then maybe I'll consider uh, trusting in Christ and living for Christ. Oh, just let me get through school or let me get through raising my kids. Or let me get through this or that. You don't have time to wait. You don't have time to wait. You never know when the day comes. Never know when the Lord will return. Never know when he will take you. Don't be them. Don't go on in, repentant, in unrepentance and unbelief. Repent and believe today. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us in these moments to respond rightly to what you've shown us today. To recognize your wrath as terrible and terrifying. Pray that you would shake us, that we would be afraid of your wrath. Pray that you would bring about repentance and faith in the lives of lost people. In light of this coming wrath, that there would be conversion, repentance and faith salvation would come. We pray that in light of this coming wrath, you would spur us on, stimulate us to preach the gospel, to share the good news with others like it was shared with us. We pray that in light of this coming wrath, we would trust you, that we would live by faith and with endurance. God, we don't want, we don't want to be like them. We don't want to be shaking our fists at you, whether in some overt way or some subtle way. We don't want to be like them. Help us respond properly to all of this today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we'll sing a, sing a song here.